today, and you were at A Life the whole time. Yes, yeah, I, I was baptized by fire. I got six hours of workshops in the yeah. first day, basically. So right. flew right. in and then workshops, workshops, workshops. Right, so, right. Um, I'm here to demonstrate my noble ape simulation, but okay. before I do, I'd like to talk a little bit about Biota, <sighs> which is a site that I've been the editor on for about... I don't know, six years now. And we basically go out and interview historical A-life folk. Um, when we interviewed Tom Ray, there were actually a few MSU students who were part of that. I'm not sure if any of oh, you really? guys participated. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the plan is to, to fully integrate you guys as well in terms of getting <clears throat> interviews and discussions and these kind of things. So you gave a presentation on the last day, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the, the sort of closing comments Certainly. about Biota, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I, Briefly, I yes. I was there, but uh, you were there. But I was still there, yeah. 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 Fading, yeah. fading up but yeah, so I don't think maybe maybe the first thing we should do is to go around and you know just so you know who you're talking Certainly. to. Um, so um, you've looked me up, I guess, zoology, <laughs> animal behavior, honeybees. We've <laughs> established that. Um, ditto. <laughs> I'm also a zoologist. I uh, study honeybees, um, <clears throat> visual navigation in honeybees. Also done some stuff with uh, human um, visual navigation. And uh, now, currently doing navigation in Avita. So, oh, Frank, Bartley, Jory, uh, graduate student studying evolution, complexity, and background computer science. Terrific. I remember eating with you last night. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm Samuel Chapman. I'm very glad to uh, be here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I work in uh, Dr. Adami's lab with uh, evolution of uh, evolution of the Jordan's lab. So terrific! Yeah, some of the best feedback has come from uh, from Professor Adami in terms of my time here. So yeah, I'm like um, I'm an incoming grad student. I'll be starting in the fall. I'm working under Rob right now. Um, I'm trying to evolve the bee dance in Avita. And I'm Rob. Very good. <laughs> And I'm trying to reach uh, Laura Grabowski, who I had not heard whether she'd be not coming soon or she did. I didn't hear from her either. How about Nicholas? Uh, I didn't hear from him. All I heard from him was Ben. Someone's not trying to get Nicholas online. I don't have. Uh, I don't see Laura online at all, so I don't see. Uh, <clears throat> I don't have. I have Nicholas's, but well, we can go ahead and get started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So a little bit of background um, associated with Noble Ape. So there are many ways to look at noble ape. This is uh, probably the easiest way to give an initial demonstration. So the noble ape simulation <coughs> creates a landscape environment initially. There are a number of simulation components that are all brought together, but it creates a random fractal landscape. There's a weather simulation that moves over the landscape, basically. It creates cloud patterns and rain and these kind of elements. Uh, there's a biological simulation, which is based loosely on quantum mechanics. I had a lot of fun with Professor Adami yesterday talking about that. So basically, at every point, there's a probability associated with the underlying shape of the landscape, the surface area, the height, um, the moving sunlight and total sunlight, uh, rainfall and uh, salt content, basically form a, a, a stack of probabilities, which the species in the simulation um, are represented by in a probabilistic form and then a, a noise map is placed on there. In the case of growing plants, it's a, a growing noise map to show the, the plants growing. In the case of um, you know, beetles, mice, these kind of things, it's a moving noise map to trap their movements. But when I started developing Noble Ape... Can I, I, can I just ask, are you, are you seeing a, a zoom in of that on the left? Yes, you are. It's, it's, an, isom it's an isometric projection of uh, the, the selected agent. So, so are these... Are these uh, these are land masses, and the red dots are agents? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Let me, let me run it. It might, it might make it... Oh, sorry. Let me run it. It might make it a little easier uh, while I talk to it. Uh, so what else? Let me put the weather over the top of this. So this is probably the, the kind of business card end of the simulation in terms of not getting anything out of it. Ah, there is also uh, three different kinds <coughs> of... Um, intelligent agent simulation that's going on. The first that you can see here is what I call the cognitive simulation, which was based on um, early agar simulation that I did and information transfer. Sorry, stepping back, I started developing Noble Ape in 1996. 
So at the time I was using 68,000 uh, processors, early XT, AT uh, machines. So the reason I used a very simple biological simulation was so I didn't have to do a lot of simulation associated with the biology, but so the apes could interrogate at the points that they were at any given time rather than doing a large-scale biological simulation. Um, there's a full-time uh, developer called Bob Mottram in the UK. He's an industrial roboticist by profession. He's added components. I'll talk about his stuff. Um, in so a just coming on, so each agent, you're calling each one of those is, is an agent. Mm-hmm. That's the, that's mm-hmm. the, okay. So they have a wide variety of things that we'll get into in terms of what's simulated and makes them an ape, um, including fur and these kind of things, but I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, so in terms of the history of the simulation, I came to it... I was studying physics and philosophy at the time, and I was interested in basically ideas of the mind, simulating ideas of of consciousness and how um, these agents in a very rich simulated environment would have social interactions and these kind of things and form societies, basically. That was the initial idea behind the simulation, and it's gone a number of different directions since then. Uh, so in terms of the intelligent agent model, um, as I was mentioning, I, was, I had early Agar simulation that I um, had developed prior to Nobelate. In fact, Nobelate was really bringing together a wide variety of bits and pieces of software that I'd written at the time. But I was interested in the idea of information transfer through the Agar as population densities kind of moved through the Agar and fed on it. Um, I resolved that down to two kind of competing formulae to describe what I used for information transfer. Initially, in a two-dimensional agar simulation, which I used to simulate the reactive cognitive processes, but then I moved it to a three-dimensional simulation. I wrote about this in a book called Nature-Inspired Informatics. So if any of you are interested, and I can, I can pass on the reference material associated with that. But the idea, basically, was that there was an internal representation, an external representation. There are sensors and actuators, um, which I have drawn in the past, but it just adds visual noise, basically, to this. You could almost see which end the sensors and actuators are coming in on. I think it's this end closest so towards... So the, the revolving thing above is the internal represent, representation mm-hmm. that, it's, that agent has. Mm-hmm. It's the first of these. There have been two additional ones layered, and at this point it's probably easiest to go to the command line version uh, just to talk more on that. So let's get rid of that version. And This is a command line version I've been <coughs> running for some time. So... Um, when Bob Bottram first came to the simulation, he added... Um, he, he comes from industrial robotics, but he's very interested in social robotics. So he added some of the uh, social models, including uh, the drive theory of Cynthia Brazil at uh, MIT. So what you see here... Uh, well, I can show you all the apes in the simulation. Uh, but you see a particular ape um, in the simulation. They have double-barreled names because they're noble apes. It's a small joke, but... <laughs> So that way you can track them. You can also track family structures and things like that through the names. There are a wide variety of simulations. But even the, even the progenitors, do they start off with uh, a couple, or did you see them with a bunch? Or I, the initial conditions are really interesting. So um, both with regards to this and what we'll get into associated with the simulation of language, um, this is initially random. The language is not initially random, and there's some discussion I've had backwards and forwards with Bob Mottram, because it's a lot more interesting, well, from my perspective at least, when the la- when the their language um, is initially randomised too, but we'll get into that in, in a minute. Um, so, yeah, the initial conditions are important here. All the apes start off um, in a condition of uh, maturity. Uh, I think this one, yeah, this one has a population of 95, eight, uh, 81 adults and 14 juveniles. So, I've run so, this, so for, this, is, this is what a starting position would be like? No, it's not. I've, I've run this for a period of time because it's a little boring initially, and when I've demoed it up until now, I've had to run it for you know at least 10 days to start getting stuff... Um, okay. populating. So uh, this, this is one that I've cooked a little earlier, so to speak, um, in terms of, well, it's been running for 43 days now, seven in the morning. Um, so in terms of um, the kinds of simulations that are internally represented, uh, there's an internal social simulation, uh, which produces a social graph, which is far more interesting to observe um, than actually in terms of the interaction. Uh, there's a brain code uh, simulation, which simulates both their external language, so when two apes meet, uh, similar in some regard to Avida, but actually there's mutual execution associated with their language code, which represents their external language. They also have an internal language, uh, which is the same language, but it's just represented internally, uh, that they run both 
with themselves represented and also external parties that they may meet in the simulation. So typically, if one is born and then suckled and nurtured and all this is in there, um, then they will have a, obviously a very strong tie to their mother in this circumstance. If the mother's taken away and another mother like ape is brought in, then they have an identical relationship to them after a certain period of time. So the interactions um, generate this. Can you just... Uh to introduce say, a little mm-hmm. bit about what their internal structures are. So, w- what is the, the what? So let me show you. So let me show you. So the internal structure of the ape, particularly, uh, I think this should do it for us. Yes. So this is what's currently um, currently represented by the internal structure, so their location, all the basic stuff associated with their points in the simulation, the speed that they're travelling, their internal energy. These were all the initial variables, um, speaking whether they're um, uttering uh, anything. They have an internal uh, random variable which is used for distribution, so it can be distributed over uh, multiple processes and basically they maintain a coherency. Uh, their date of birth, uh, where were we? Um, the brain location, it's, it's dynamically stored. Um, an overarching set of state variables which were associated with the cognitive simulation specifically. Uh, they have um, this comes into Brazil's work associated with uh, the references to crowding and posture uh, they collect various objects and things like that so they have an inventory um, Bob Mottram added an uh, idea of honour um, which was a social currency relating to parasites and grooming uh, early on so mm-hmm. that is included as well so to just to jump in most of these it sounds like it, they're fairly abstract. Let me go down. They're actually quite a bit more. So, unfortunately, right. the difficulty. So, um, there's also uh, familial relationships, familial genetics, which are basically stored to be referenced, not stored to actually be used. Bob recently um, introduced a, a vascular simulation. Uh, there's a metabolism simulation, which has various other effects. So, you've got heart rate, breathing, these kind of things. They have, um, based on where they meet and eat and greet, basically, they... Uh, have an idea of territories as well, which is another thing that Bob added specifically. There was an earlier version of territories um, associated just with a simple cognitive simulation, uh, but Bob's background in terms of you know social robotics and these kind of things liked he liked to hard code this. So, so, so just say a little bit about the territories, since that's something we're mm-hmm. interested in. So, when they're um, first seated or born or mm-hmm. something, they're they have no territories. Something anywhere and so on. So what is it that determines a, a territory? So, um, again, I prefer to talk to the code on this because it changes dynamically irrespective of me sitting here. Um, but um, what it means from my recollection is that uh, if they have points of meeting and um, eating and these kind of things where they see other apes, it reinforces a notion of a territory because they have... Um, a social graph representation associated with social meetings. So eventually this becomes a referential thing where there is just an agreed-upon territory from that. But the view of territory through that has changed quite a bit. So, so it's something that's... moving around, mm-hmm. they come across another for mm-hmm. the first time, there's an interaction mm-hmm. that's, that's then located in their social graph. Mm-hmm. It becomes a point there, mm-hmm. meet someone else. Mm-hmm. But something about the nature of the interaction will determine whether that becomes my territory or is that how and then and then just following up on that when you have that variable i guess you would call it or object territ you know Mm -hmm. territorial information Mm -hmm. that's sort of a predefined structure data structure that can take certain values and i think it's a scalar structure that represents um a a block it's not a it's not a point it's a a region basically on the map that's described in that session and really it's a shorthand one of the things that interests me about the simulation is the fact that the more simulations you throw in, then you can pull out bits and these kind of things. And my view from pre- prior history, prior to Bob's work in there, is that the territory is, is too much shorthand that can be described through other things as well. So, for example, through the social graph, you have this idea of meeting points. And there's also referential code around that. So through the, through the brain code, through the byte code that they run, um, it's possible for them to link other events that occurred in that place or link other places that occurred with an individual or a wide variety of these kind of combinations in terms of linking the variables to other things that happened either involving those places or involving those and this is this is part of the brain code uh, execution so it has to be something that associates the social meetings with the geographical location mm-hmm. 
Certainly. So you're simulating, and these are all separate simulations within the framework, mm -hmm. right? So these are different algorithms or models that mm -hmm. are or simulations that are modeling things that we think go on in apes, right? Certainly. So you're modeling everything from physi or simulating everything from the physiology and morphology to the behavior and cognition and inner brain works, but these are all being done, a lot of these are being done through separate modules that do or don't interact. They interact, okay. but they don't have to. I mean, they're replaceable in terms of the fact that they will either be zeroed or removed, basically. Right. You but yeah, the on and off at, exactly. at, at your leisure. But Certainly. once they're running, they do, the outputs of one of these parts of the model or simulation do input into the other parts? Certainly. Okay. There's a problem with the idea of levels, and I don't like using the term levels to describe the simulation into relationships because there are some components which are horizontal in terms of the communication, some components that are vertical. But yes, it's designed basically to remove and, and put back. Um, and certainly in terms of long-term testing, that's, that's what we've done basically to... And, and any time someone comes up with a, what they think is a new or interesting behavior or part of physiology, they, add, they, they model it and then try to get into the simulation, mm -hmm. right? Certainly. Okay. Certainly. So then what can change, what processes or what operations can change the dynamics of the interaction? Do you have learning processes? Do you have evolutionary processes? So Maybe you're getting there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, had, I had a bit of fun with, with uh, Professor Adami yesterday associated with the E-word. Let me say that there's variation selection inheritance within the simulation, and the, all of these things can be changed accordingly. Mm -hmm. um, but um, on questions of the kinds of variations and the breadth of variations, certainly that was the depth of my discussion with uh, Professor mm -hmm. Adami, and in terms of the um, nature of um, the selection in particular, because the more you put in, obviously, the broader the possibilities, basically. Mm -hmm. So um, in these terms, um, I, I would probably casually use the E-word because it does contain variation selection and inheritance. Um, but in terms of perhaps biological studies or these kind of things, that's certainly something that can be expanded. And in terms mm -hmm. of the um, very simple genome that I maintain currently, I think that can be expanded greatly. Mm -hmm. But currently, any of these things are represented on a genome that could be modified? Certainly, yeah, certainly. So that's, so that's a pretty... Exactly. Yeah. And it also seems, given their the lifespans here, I mean, there are lots of things, right? Mm -hmm. You don't have many generations. I mean, you run this 10 days. So, how many generations so have? none. The, I typically yeah. run it for between um, 500 to 1,000 simulated years. They live typically from 16 to maybe, in extreme cases, 40, 48 years. But not many generations. Well, certainly, yes. But there's enough to, for social phenomena to arise, and I think that's the thing that interests me most through it. And certainly talking with Professor Adami yesterday, the kind of data that's needed to show that in, in a serious scientific sense was basically what we were discussing. Uh, and he gave three deliverables associated with that that I'm, I'm working towards, because I think that's quite interesting in and of itself. Um, but certainly doing it in a kind of uh, organic industry simulation sense versus something that can be you know, scientifically used are two quite distinct things. But my interest in coming and meeting folks such as yourself is certainly putting as much science in as possible and hopefully, you know, of it being of some benefit, basically. Yeah. How would you model the, the genetics of the... Well, you clearly have juveniles and adults, and mm -hmm. juveniles grow into adults, so you're also simulating or modeling in some way that the developmental processes. Certainly. What are the underlying genetics for something like that in general? Do you have regulatory mechanisms where parts of the genome are turned on and turned off? at particular times? Uh, well, it, I mean, in terms of sexual things, yes. Okay. Uh, in terms of various diet things, I believe so as well. Okay. Um, if there are more things that can be included, by all means. But certainly in terms of the sexual things, mating preferences, these kind of things, clearly. And, and things like life history traits, uh, age of reproduction, and these sorts of things are, are, are inherently in here, implicitly? Certainly. But they can, be, they can be added associated with explicit you know, maturing genetics and these kind of things, too. I mean, the genetic model is relatively simple, but I think could be expanded. But it does take into account all these kind of factors. In fact, certainly Bob's influence was actually... I mean, he's done amazing work, basically, over the past three years. But to expand the genome and also start putting in, um, what is it? Uh, it's a word I've learnt only being here. Um, uh, paleotropic? Like multiple... Pleiotropic. Pleiotropic, yes. Yeah. So that was a phenomenon that I wanted to put in early on. 
um, and just by the limited genome set, it's it's a consequence. Right. But I think if the genome was expanded sufficiently, where there were some that were, were pleiotropic and some that weren't pleiotropic, in terms of these, it would be interesting as well. So I mean, I'm interested in expanding all these parts, basically. Maybe you can imagine a system where each of these algorithms is coded by a separate set of gene, gene or a separate set of genes, all that comprise the the genome, where these things can actually have recombination and whatnot in sexual circumstances. Or you can imagine a general genome that incorporates, you know, one gene that incorporates many of these. And it seems to me like as much stuff as you have in this, that's going to be a really sophisticated thing to, to work out. Well, I mean, my own biases through through the, I mean, the reason that I included uh, pleiotropic in there early on was basically to maximize the speed of, of demonstrable evolution, basically. Right. So... Um, that may be an artificial constraint that I put in there just for my own interests, basically. But am I, I mean, if it requires kind of expanding and what have you, I'm, I'm more than happy to do that as well. Um, so in terms of their language specifically, let's... Uh, so they have, they have multiple internal... Um, well, they're just, they're just byte strings associated with the language, and then they have one external byte string associated with the language. So let's run this for 10 days, so just see it run. So it's based on uh, red code, as all these things seem to be, with the addition of sensors and actuators that relate to everything from, as I described, associated with referential settings and moving um, to things like rumours and things like that that they can pass on amongst each other. Professor Adami in particular was very interested in this in terms of getting um, long-term output and references associated with movement and things like that. Uh, historically, we haven't done that, but I think that's very important. And there's a lot of interesting analysis that you can get out of that, particularly associated with the detailed kinds of communication. So implicitly within the communication, um, well, through the through the red code light language, uh, they do describe um, relationships between the apes. And a phenomenon I noted just before attending a life that I talked about a bit at the conference when when people approached me was the association of um, uh, rumored or false parents. So you see there's a notion of epic which represents the apes that are most being talked about because it tracks basically when they talk about um, other apes. And what I found over particularly even within 10-day runs but more typically over uh, 20 to 50-day runs, you would have an ape that would have a really high epic number and when you looked inside the ape it would have... When you say epic number? I'll, I'll, uh, unfortunately there's the problem with running the simulation. I've got to wait till it stops before I can... Um, but uh, I'll, I'll come to it. But it's, it's a scalar representation that refers to an ape that's being talked about. So you'll end up with a kind of top ten representation of the apes in the simulation that are most being talked about. So it's basically the, the gossip column. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's catching references <laughs> within the brain associated with specific apes. And what you see in the ape that's typically at the top in some of these circumstances is that they have, usually it's a false father who's been inserted in some way and they're representations of typically both their parents but at least always their mothers and what I've observed becomes, well they have, sorry I should point this out, they have both friends and enemy relationships which is associated with good and bad interactions. These can both be things, they have notions of like brandishing and glowering and smiling and all this kind of stuff. So it can be both facial interactions, it can be some communication that they've had or a wide variety of other factors because they maintain maintain internal representations of apes. So all that you see here in terms of listed as friends and enemies, there'll be an internal language representation of that ape, almost like an internal simulation basically associated with that ape. Can you say a little bit how that that works? So uh, they've got got some slots into which they can say these are my friends, mm-hmm. these are my enemies, okay, so they're representing those as categories mm-hmm. that you've placed there, right? Mm-hmm. Is that right? So those categories are already... It's, it's based on, yeah, again, it's, it's social robotics, so it's based on interactions that they've had that are then immediately classified as bad or good and weighted accordingly. All right, so, so those categories are in there, and then there's something associated with the interactions that let you say that was positive, that mm-hmm. was negative. Mm-hmm. So enough positives put them in the front camp and mm-hmm. enough negatives put them mm-hmm. in the enemy camp? Yes, but this can be both external interactions and also internal things that their, their representation run against themselves, basically, um, sets off as well. So the notion of the being language universally means that what they 
when two of them meet and have an external conversation, exactly the same process happens with regards to their internal representation. So maintain an internal representation of themselves and an internal representation of all, all the apes listed, basically. And they run the code as they were, as if they were having an external conversation, but they're having an internal conversation with the representation of the ape. So the hypothesis so we have... Does happen automatically in parallel, or they could diverge? Uh, well, in terms of meeting, they obviously happen at the point of meeting. But in terms of internally, uh, per cycle, I think, and this is something in the code that's, that's probably going to change, they will have, as you see here, their relationship attention. So when it says relationship attention itself, it's running an internal representation of itself, in this case with its external representation, so it can kind of talk about itself. But when it says grandson, for example, that is a representation, um, which in this case isn't represented by a specific ape, but could be represented by um, some other representation that it's having. It's difficult when you start with um, the initial conditions where you have apes that are basically living and they have to have some kind of previous relationship. So I think in that case specifically, it's um, a, a kind of false grandparent or whatever that's just stimulated there. But if they actually had interactions and produced, um, if they were a grandchild or things like that, then it would be represented um, in their internal... Um, so how do these things go? I mean, all I see there, I now see relationship attention. So that's, mm -hmm. that's referring to their internal representation mm -hmm. and what they're representing at that moment. So this guy here is representing itself. It's mm -hmm. thinking about itself. Is that the way you mm -hmm. put it? Flora? Mm -hmm. Okay. And um, let's say Flora interacts with uh, Thora mm -hmm. uh, up there, who happens to be, well, Eudora, happens mm -hmm. to be her daughter. Mm -hmm. right? um, an, an enemy now, I see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very negative <laughs> relationship. Yes, yes. Yeah. Mother-daughter relationship. Exactly, yes, yes. Uh, but so, she likes the sun. <laughs> so how, how is it, I mean, just so I understand what's going on, right? How is it that, that when they meet, right, whatever interactions mm -hmm. they have, how does that um, get, get modeled in the representation? So is it just automatic at first? So whatever they're having to do, they're representing simultaneously, is that? Or? Yes, initially. Um, but then through, through interaction, basically, it gets, it gets recalibrated. The initial conditions are always difficult. But initially what will happen, I, from my recollection of the code, is that they will have run what they're describing here in terms of familial elements. They're actually either representing in, in kind of false familial elements that are pre-generated, pre or they're actually referencing things within their friends and their enemies list that in some kind of perceived social structure. That part of the code, I'm not particularly clear on, which is why I'm recording this, because it goes back to Bob, and then he gives me the answers in these circumstances. So, I work on Noble Ape part-time, he works on a full-time. So, so yeah. all your questions are me. Don't so, say anything stupid. So, this kind of reminds me of rehearsal, um, which is, you know, argued for a lot of animals learning cognitive abilities, mm -hmm. and that is, you, you don't you go and do it, and then you can basically rehearse it in your head without actually mm -hmm. without actually acting it out. And that sounds similar to this, is they have mm -hmm. these interactions, and then they replay them in their mind. Mm -hmm. But this has the effect of reinforcing anything that they might glean from that interaction. Exactly. Right? There's a condition of stability that's attained, which you can actually see in the two, because you've got your external and your internal. So you can see conditions of stability in the code. That basically they'll have an experience, it will produce one reaction, and then they work against their internal to actually... Kind of produce stability in what the external reaction has has produced. Does basically. that save you? I mean, so so in animals, the argument is that that saves them actually having to interact with the world and put themselves at risk over and over and over again to learn something or to make those associations. Certainly, it, is that the purpose, or is that just sort of? It, it was one of the purposes, but very much so. Um, also, the idea I, you can find through running the simulation that they will maintain internal representations of apes that have passed away as well. So in long-term runs of the simulation, you typically only... I mean, I've seen it within 20 days' worth of runs because, you know, there'll always be an ape that drowns and typically that might be an ape that is known in some regard. So, you know, th they will continue to maintain internal representations of the apes. Of the drowned ape. Exactly. Interesting. And um, in terms of what deeper stuff comes through, obviously the, the I'm still gathering the results associated with that. But there are these kind of interactions which I think originally, and unfortunately this was my last writing on this because Bob changes the code relatively frequently, but originally there was just a single internal and a single external um, language string, basically, that they were running continuously. And what happened through that, um, 
was um, interesting but not dynamic enough for the stuff that Bob was looking to, to model. So he then created multiple internal language strings and mapped them onto initially familial uh, characteristics but also now external enemies and, and friends and these kind of things. Um, but yeah, the idea of really strong... Um, almost kind of like not necessarily deity-like relationships but certainly a mythology particularly associated with heavy kind of nemesis apes and and eulogized apes want better terminology um and the fact that uh, two three generations after these apes have passed away they can still be referred to quite heavily and say so the let me show you what epic is it's very much a letdown it's literally just a scalar representation of the apes that's talked about but what you'll find, um, particularly with deceased states that have had a lot of interaction, is that they'll continue to maintain high epic numbers. So they'll continue to be talked about even after even after they, they pass away. That's that's really interesting because I mean you know you can maybe think that a, a, an ape that's dead would have an influence later on, and uh, so you have something that's not doing anything anymore, but it's still sort of continuing in some fashion. Well, it is doing something. I mean, that's that's the nature of the internal simulation is that it continues to do things even after it's passing, basically. Mm-hmm. Because it's continued to be represented and the more apes that have a representation of it... Now, these representations can be completely skewed. They don't have to be the same internal representation at all. In fact, it's, it's perfectly feasible, particularly in the cases of nemesis apes, that it'll be a bad ape for a wide variety of reasons, depending on the internals of the the ape that's maintaining it. And possibly good, good in others, right? Certainly. So if there's, if there's dominance hierarchies and you're on the better end of it, you might keep an epic number that's high, mm. that's good, and then those that are at the bottom of that hierarchy could be an epic number that is high but bad, yeah. right? Well, presumably, a high epic, high, higher on the list means that you're you're talked about more than anyone, mm-hmm. period. Mm-hmm. It doesn't regardless matter, good, bad, bad. Yeah. Regardless of the context. Yeah. yeah. Um, you're being thought about, really. I mean, not so much even talked about. Yeah, so, at this so point. there's a difference between what's going on in the representation and what you're doing as a result of that. So, is epic what you're talking about, or is it what you're thinking? Or about? is it the sum total? Okay. This is why the recorder's here, because I'm not absolutely precisely sure. It, I think it's actually spoken about <coughs> in terms of an external rather than internal, and that's what makes it even more interesting. Because if it was just an internal representation, then yes, it would be. But these apes are actually talking about this ape, which probably reinforces the propagation of the ape being maintained in conversation, basically. And that's even more interesting in the case of apes that have passed. I mean, why continue to talk about an entity that no longer exists? It's one thing to think about it as a memory, but to sit around chip-chatting about it seems odd. Well, what I've, I mean, what I've, observed, <laughs> what I've observed is actually, if you, run it for, if you run the simulation for long periods of time, you get clans. You get clans just by naming convention, so you can see genetically that they're right. maintaining territories and also breeding. But what you find through that environment as well is exactly this: this is where the because because they're all sticking to the same territories, they're all actively communicating. The referential associated with the deceased ape a few generations ago is actually part of the commonality that is also you know fundamentally part of the genetics. Can you just show me one of those social maps? And you have a ah, the social graph is 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 a particularly. Um, not in any of these versions, but the social graph is, if you can imagine, it's a, it's a point graph, basically, and what you end up with is social clusters over time. What's particularly interesting is if one ape is ejected from the social cluster, because then you see a shift of apes making decisions about whether they move from the dominant social cluster to this new radical ape or not. Um, and visually, it's it's beautiful. It's yeah, one of the one of the views I've seen. You can't show us to us. I'm not currently, no, no. It's not in the version that I have here. It's not, I, 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 look, I, I put in the stuff that Professor Adami wanted within a day. I will work on the social graphs if need be and get you a version. Because no, it's it's one of my favourite parts of the simulation in terms of just actually visualising these social groups. I mean, especially since your point here seems to be to model social interactions, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I don't yet see. Uh, I mean, here I'm starting to see a little bit about that, but um, since you said it's tied to territories and so on, I was just curious to see how those... You don't, want it, you don't want a spatial representation as part of the social graph, though. It would be... You could have some linking, but so, the, we, so it doesn't match... The territories don't match? To some, to some extent, they do. But initially, and particularly early on in the simulation, they're still in a kind of exploratory phase. They're, 
the kind of territorial areas are not really well defined. So what you see in the social group is more the kinds of interactions that occur as they kind of traverse the landscape. But to see it graphically, it's better to have it represented outside in its own space, basically. So they have the freedom to actually move around in social but, clusters. But in the actual environment to interact, there's a spatial component to that, right? I can't interact with an ape that's six miles from me, right? Certainly. Okay. So there is a, there, there's inherently a spatial component in the interaction space. You can think about that, ape. I mean, the, the apes can, you know, through the languages described. But the things, yes, they, they need to be within close proximity in order to... Um, if, you, yeah, if you're modeling a spatial part, if, I mean, if you're not modeling space, in you know, real physical space by <laughs> any means, and it, that's irrelevant, but it seems like you're doing that. So <laughs> if you are doing that, then there's obviously going to be a spatial component to any communication that they have, I would imagine. Certainly. But yeah, it's a direct, direct communication. You can communicate indirectly by word of mouth, for Certainly. example. Yeah. So you, but I, I have a really... Some of these things are islands, right? Mm -hmm. So... I would imagine if you looked at the social graph there, that would have uh, its own little network, right? It couldn't have connected to the other one because they never had any physical interaction. Well, they just, I've tracked eight over, yeah, they swim. So, the other thing with the one that went swimming two hours ago, <laughs> 10 minutes ago, yeah, so, 19, 19, 19. Yeah, but do they have parameters on how far they can swim? Yes, they do. Yeah, yeah, they do. Oh they do. In fact, the early success, if you can imagine, if you can imagine, 16 years ago, this was released on a on an early internet. The early success was typically with undergraduate students that wanted to teach their apes to swim, but more importantly, drown the apes. So there was a kind of early brutalization that propagated very rapidly in terms of getting the simulation notoriety associated with it, trying desperately to drown all the apes in the shortest amount of time and all these kind of things. So, yeah, I mean, if there's anything to say about noble ape in terms of visualization and these kind of things, I mean, um, I've had, I've had uh, unimaginable amounts of success associated with the simulation for a wide variety of factors, but visualization is one of them. Early on, well, in 2003, because it would compile on, on multiple compilers, Apple picked it up. Um, it was originally with two engineers and then internally with an Apple, and then they demonstrated it at WWDC, uh, and then they put it on um, the CD-ROM that came with every Mac that they sold from 2003, basically as part of the Chud toolkit. Hmm. And then um, Intel picked it up through the movement from Ultivec to SSE. Um, so in terms of uh, Intel... That's just a demo or something? No, no, no. The, the, because there are ideas, there are certain optimizations that you could do as the processes change <coughs> um, with vector processing, with multi-threading, and they use Noble Ape. There's a eight brain cycles per second, which I'll bring up, which was the metric that they used to track optimization. And... Um, by using threading models, by using uh, vector processing models and various tuning characteristics within Nobelite, they were able to demonstrate both internally and with third parties optimization that they um, that the third parties or internally could then use. So here's Nobelite, here's the eight brain cycles per second. If you implement this method, then you get this improvement in eight brain cycles per second. Implement this in your code, and you'll get the same improvement basically. Um, and uh, yeah, that's, that's how they used it. And Intel um, was a slightly smaller group of engineers than Apple, but at least they had a... The, as you entered a, an engineering team, you'd be given a project with Noble 8 just to you know, test your chops associated with optimization. And a couple of years ago, I gave a talk at Intel and saw one of these teams, basically. Um, the manager had first brought Noble Ape into Intel. So they're, from they're not trying to simulate apes. They're just using it as a pure the, the, sort of uh, diagnostic tool. Yeah, they, they want something that um, is sufficiently, you know, touches a sufficient number of their internals and also is scalable. So mm -hmm. in the case of Intel, they would occasionally pass me back code where number of processes would be N, for example. So clearly they would have some internal processor testing. They would ramp up the number of processes and see how they could get the eight brain cycles per second to improve and see what changes needed to be made. So um, I don't know if I'm speaking Swahili, but Grand Central Dispatch uh, and Intel's internal Atom um, development associated with optimized processing, basically they use Noble Ape for that as well. Wow. So, so they're not messing with the code or making a development. They're just using it then, okay. Purely utilitarian, it. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but yeah, it's still an amazing... So what, what would be in those... Just I'm interested in this just because that's kind of an unexpected <coughs> twist. I didn't expect that that's how this was being used. But um, 
what what's the mapping between the apes in the simulation and the elements of whatever they're modeling and trying to optimize? I mean, what would be the well? It's to do what with would be, what would apes correspond to in the? It's to do with processing. So, okay. for example, the cognitive simulation, which is the this right hacking thing here, basically modeled for each of the apes, uh-huh. has various internal mathematics. I mean, it's two competing formulae. Um, calculated continuously basically Mm. and from that because it touches both um, near memory and also far memory and does so in a variety of fashions Mm. it provides a good enough metric for what they were looking for Uh, to start then as as processes changed and had mapping of memory and what have you then they could do optimizations based on that but Apple was also interested in the real-time graphics. It wasn't just the compiler, multiple compilers. The real-time graphics was important to them as well because they wanted to show that um, certain mathematical internal things didn't have to affect the graphics, that you could do the two in parallel. And certainly early on, prior to my interaction with Apple, tuning the graphics and getting them real-time and you know reasonable in terms of the general interaction was very important for me. I mean, mm-hmm. the discussion of 68,000s and things like that. And prior to Apple picking it up, I first went into Apple in 1998, I think, Mm. and they were interested in particular. I had a um, first-person perspective view or first-eight perspective view Mm. of the environment in in real time that they liked because it it was faster than some of their uh, Mm. technology. So, uh, I mean, my relationship with these, um, with both Apple and Intel has been, um, well, I mean, purely to utilise it for whatever itches they want to scratch. And in terms of meaningful code contribution back... <laughs> you see, that's very... the language that you're associated with this, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, so in terms of meaningful things, um, the contributions back really didn't have that much to the development. Mm-hmm. It was purely they were looking at particular architectures and wanting to... But at the same point, um, they displayed it to, you know, hundreds, thousands of engineers. And um, although I couldn't attend the... WWDC conferences, it was pretty cool to watch the videos yeah. and get a sense of you know the audience participation and this kind of mm-hmm. stuff. So. so I have a really basic question about uh, you know how so you've got you've got state transitions, <laughs> you've got overt ones as they interact with the environment, but there's also internal state <laughs> transitions. What causes a transition? I mean, there must some some of the stuff's just stuff happens to mm-hmm. you. You drown, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a flood comes mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the agency of the of the ape, and it it has to do something. Mm-hmm. What what is the value function? Let's let's say that drives state transition. So it's and almost, how does that value function change? It's almost well, aside from what I've represented associated with honor and these kind of scalar values, mm-hmm. it all now leads into the language. Um, and that's Bob's current work and that's what he's working on it doesn't have to lead into the language it can lead into other Mm -hmm. things as well but uh, every aspect now leads into the language with the view that the the language provides the most dynamic means of changing state and the most you know. So language can be a, a, a stimulus, it can mm-hmm. be, but 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 you need a motivation. You need mm-hmm. a, a reason, a value mm-hmm. function. So that's why you know, French oh, terms okay. value so, function. Um, why should you respond to a word? So what, is there a fitness, well, there, there, is there, there a learning there, signal, a reward? So in terms of um, in terms of the drives, that provides a motivation. Mm-hmm. But the drives are interesting because they're not they're not equal in any way. I mean, fatigue and hunger basically a, a dominant tribes mm-hmm. um, but I mean if that's what you're looking for that would be an yeah, example yeah. okay those, so those are those are the only two that you've got uh, no there's, there's sex and social as well so it's hunger oh, fatigue sex and social out. okay yeah. so that um, so hunger fatigue alright and so are those are somehow those are somehow integrated all of them mm-hmm. uh, and to to then determine a state transition. Certainly. I see. Certainly. So, so if you if you're have a hunger score of zero, you can be faced with food, and you're not hungry, so you don't interact mm-hmm. with the food. Right? Mm-hmm. If you've got a high hunger score, you've got food in front of you, mm-hmm. that'll motivate you to, to do something related mm-hmm. to getting it. Uh-huh. Like okay. That. Is that the way it works? So it's, it's the relationship of that. Yeah, basically. I mean, there are other elements to it as well, but I think that's the, the easiest categorizer. And, and so how does it work for these other ones? So like, this one is really... Horny, mm-hmm. all that mm-hmm. high, high sex. Yes, it's <laughs> relatively standard amongst the noble ladies. Social attraction. Do not care about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yes, yes, yes. Don't care, don't care about food. <laughs> she, she has children already, so uh, the ape is well defined. Okay. Uh, so yes. So, so in an interaction, right? So 
they're, they're pretty broad at this point now. So an interaction, um, well, I suppose you can exchange, can you exchange food? So if someone mm -hmm. has food, mm -hmm. so, that, so hunger could come into play and something like that. So mm -hmm. how do the other ones work? What are the other things that would be a state change that you would do if you have a high fatigue or a low social or whatever? Well, um, in terms of motivation, uh, the fatigue is an interesting one. I think it just causes them to kind of slow down, basically. So um, I really can't talk heavily to them because of the um, particular abstract nature of the code. But um, in terms of the fatigue, yes, slow down. In terms of the social, they may be more interested in seeking out apes, either apes that they know uh, or apes that they um, you know, see in terms of their interactions. There is representation of, um, well, I mean, associated as well with their friendship groups and things like that. They will try to seek out uh, apes that they've seen and are friendly with in familiar places. So that it brings so that together the loneliness score. No, but it, there are only four scores here. So this mm -hmm. is this is Fred's question. I'm just trying to get yeah. some of the details mm -hmm. of this. How do you translate a drive that I have right, with a number associated with which you can change? Mm -hmm. uh, how does that translate into what I Action. do? Then changes something. Well, as there as there are episodic memories, there are also social memories, and the social memories for social in particular, although there are sexual components to it as well. Can um, so if they have a social memory and they have a particularly high social need, then they may find, based on their location, the representation of the social memory, which will cause them to return potentially. I mean, it's never returning to the exact point, but it's going back to the area with the view that other apes may be congregating there. This is a relatively abstract example. I'm not specifically sure. Yeah, the way the, I'm starting yeah. to understand this is that the state space is absolutely gigantic. Yeah, um, because you can have all these locations, mm -hmm. you can have the histories mm -hmm. you've had, you, you know, the memories, the interactions you've had, and, and you have this internal and external mm -hmm. representations mm -hmm. and words coming in. And so, you know, and you, may, you may not ever visit the same state in a specific sense, yeah. but there might be a hierarchical way of thinking about state too, mm -hmm. you know, whether you're in the group or out of the group or on an island or in water or mm -hmm. out of water. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you're going to have state is really going to be partly also where your motivational levels are. But so those partly define, it seems to me, maybe I'm wrong about this, but your drives partly define your state, your mm -hmm. current state. Mm -hmm. But that in conjunction, your drive levels in conjunction with new information yeah, is going to influence whether you make a decision to make certainly. a state transition. Certainly, yes. So, um, and I assume, too, that the drives can be, they, they can sort of jointly influence a state transition. It's certainly. not just one at a time, right? Certainly, certainly. So, okay, and the, I think I, that's sort of yeah. helping me understand. The states that are described here, I mean, in terms of just basic things like moving and these kind of things, are very, very rough. They're clearly, and this yeah. is something that interests me about narrative in terms of combining it all together and then making something that's human readable, because you can then add more of the depth, basically, in describing the states. Well, ultimately, but they have, they're going to define, the apes will define the state for you, right? So, I mean, that's what's going to happen. I mean, you can call this or that a state, but, it, you know, how they integrate all that information and act upon it is what's going to define the actual state for them. But there's so, some things that are explicitly predefined, mm -hmm. right? Ate a twig, or ate vegetation, picked up a twig. I mean, those are things that are presumably hard-coded in there, right? And other things... I assume would be uh, emergent right? because you've got ways of, of being close or not just by virtue of where you are and if, if uh, location is something they wind up tracking in their representation mm -hmm. and say we congregate where apes congregate right? that's a territorial thing which emerged mm -hmm. from the interaction well you can imagine memories uh, you know, and, and ideas about where food is also being emergent yes they are the environment they had the experience of eating a twig but now they replay that in their mind over and over again and maybe that's some kind of locate, locale associated with it so now they have a place and an action paired and the state action pairing for that that is emergent right so well I don't know can they can they track something like that I mean an association how are, how are associations in terms of well they're both episodic and social so the social associations are, relate to apes basically the episodic both relate to apes, but with the location. They both have locations, but they're represented differently. So by episodic, you mean the classic definition of an episodic memory. What, when, where mm -hmm. memory. Mm -hmm. okay. And the, the social graph elements always refer to... So it's actually, it's actually the last interaction that you had with a specific ape. 
and there's the associated um, brain code, the internal representation of that ape associated with that memory as well. So, um, so ha- I'm just just to sort of see how this could work. So, I've interacted with Flora before mm-hmm. in a certain place, mm-hmm. um, and while interacting with there, we exchanged food or picked up mm-hmm. a twig. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. So, uh, how is it that those associations are built or not? I mean, so you have you have a positive. So in that case, you probably have both. Well, maybe you wouldn't have an episodic memory because it's associated with a person specifically. So if they passed you the twig, if they put it down, then you picked it up, then it would be associated both episodic, probably only episodic. But if she passed you the twig, then it would be a social representation, which meant that she would be there and it would have some impact on her social code that you were running, uh, that the ape was running internally as well. So that would both be a positive influence, which would up Flora in the friends category, and also, you would have the opportunity to take that experience away and run it um, as Flora's uh, internal representation, basically. So, but I, I guess I still don't understand how, how it works. So I can imagine you've got um, something that's, that's a representation of, 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 well, this is Flora we're seeing, mm-hmm. it's Eudora, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, Flora now has a representation of, of Eudora, having mm-hmm. now met her, mm-hmm. right? That's retained as a memory, mm-hmm. okay? Um, but presumably you can't have everything that you've ever done in the vicinity of, of Eudora exactly. maintained. Right? Exactly. That's what I'm asking. How are associations? So, so every, t- every, well, they're created in social graph memories. So when you, when you have that interaction with Eudora, and if you would have another interaction with Eudora, your, your new interaction with Eudora would be the social graph memory, but your executed code associated with that experience and the experiences prior would also be retained associated with that memory. So the social graph both captures the interaction, but also the legacy history in, in a code sense as well. But, but again, all history? so many things that could have happened, and Certainly. they're not all retained. They're not all retained. It's, okay, it's, so a, that's, it's that's covered. In my representation now of, of Eudora, right? mm-hmm. I've got her, I'm Flora, mm-hmm. I've got mm-hmm. her my code, right? and I did some things in the past with Eudora, mm-hmm. including meeting in certain places mm-hmm. or exchanging twigs mm-hmm. or swimming. Well, now I'm over the retained. But um, all of those things to be usable, mm-hmm. right, have to be retained. Associated and then retained, Certainly. right? Yes. So that's the question I have. I could see how. My score, my social score mm-hmm. vis-a-vis Eudora goes up or down. Mm-hmm. Right? I mm-hmm. give her a positive if mm-hmm. she gave me food. I, mm-hmm. I give her a negative if she attacked me. Mm-hmm. She, yeah, the, the, the bit that I'm trying to describe is the block of language associated with Eudora. So while the most recent interaction is what is retained in a, in a social graph, in a, in a memory, all your, all your previous linguistic interaction, including the social interaction, is what is retained almost like an internal program associated with Eudora. And yes, it may contain a representation of the previous events. It won't contain a representation of all the previous events. It may contain a representation of an event that was particularly important when run against the, uh, your internal representation as well. So in the notion of, of creating a, a stable language, basically, you would run against your internal against Eudora, and that could retain some of the information associated with the history. But it is, it's, it's, I can I can I can show you rather than. Um, I think so. Can I ask real quick? Can apes talk to themselves? Can they reinforce? Certainly. Again. So this yes, they they reinforce from their external language or internal. What you're seeing here actually is their external language and their internal language that's run against each other and then stabilizes accordingly. Mm-hmm. Wait, so so this is external and that's internal? Yes. Okay, but they're not, uh, they're not matched. No, that's because we've stopped it at a, at a point of, of transience. So okay. they may not match as well. There may be instabilities in the code. Um, but sometimes you see certainly when they do match. Um, it doesn't look like any of the... Well, maybe they just... So, for example, SG. So this ear is what is retained in the social graph. So you have this information as well, just associated with the last interaction, and then the representation of the ape and the attraction. 
the friend of Freud rating, which is a scalar all the way through, it's represented as positive and negative. Uh, some abstract belief, uh, level of familiarity, the relationship that you have with the ape. But what I've been talking about is the local brain code that that ape is represented by, which will tra- continue um, to transition as you have future meetings. It'll just be the most recent social interaction. However, some of these things, like friend or foe, uh, belief, attraction, these things are basically maintained over multiple experiences as well. And updated. Like a vector that's just updated, though. It's not actual episodic experience being held by itself to, to recount, right? It can, be, it can be accessed through the brain code, though. So irrespective of what the brain code is running, they're also... Um, well, whether you call them sensors or actuators is immaterial. There are also things within the brain code that can access this independently of the formal way that you get to it through the social graph. So there are certain operators, um, again, I'm a, I, can't, I think they're sense operators, that um, will be able to reach into this and, and get this information and re-inject it back. So I guess the, we're all asking the same question. Mm-hmm. How... How accurate and how far back does that memory go? Is it basically well, it's, everything? Well, it's, it's dynamic. Um, so, no, it's, it refines over time because it's a, the, mm-hmm. the, the actual memory is linguistic. It's not mm-hmm. um, associated with events. The only the most recent event okay. is what's stored as an event. But within that, there are scalar values that will change through multiple okay. interactions too. Okay. So it's a combination of final events specifically, a series of scalar interactions plus the language associated with the, with the ape. Specifically, where is the, where's the language? Uh, that's the brain code. That's the brain code. Yeah, so this will be a structure uh, similar to this, basically. Okay, and then in this simulation, there's nothing like, like the language thing is is really complex and, and really well developed. But something like just physical interaction with the environment doesn't have these same characteristics, right? So if I find resource in, at X Y in the world. Is that updated and kept around in the same way that the, the language thing is? So that's episodic. Okay, so that's strictly... Well, episodic also... I mean, the episodic is captured also contains social interactions as well. Okay. But it basically, um, typically in a resource sense, for example, like picking up twigs and things like that, that is episodic memory associated with location. Okay. Now... Uh, <laughs> Things like being poisoned by particular kinds of shellfish and these kind of preferences too um, have a language representation rather than anything deeper than that. But the hope is that the language representation will be enough to get them thinking twice before they eat the shellfish again that's poisoned. How do they make those associations, right? It's usually time delay. They don't get sick that very second. Well, you don't associate so the, well that's sickness. interesting. Um, I think with shellfish they get sick relatively rapidly. With eating other things they don't necessarily... And toxicity uh, is something else that, that Bob has added, specifically associated with foods, but also uh, parasitic diseases and things like that. Um, so yeah, that was another piece that was added. But the time delay factor is very important. Um, There's huge literatures about this stuff. One trial learning, you know, sort of gustatory associations versus visual associations. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a huge biological li- literature on this, and it's really interesting to understand how closely this is being modeled to what are currently accepted models in those fields. Yeah. So there's an open question associated with the language as well, and this is one of my interests too, whether the language is complicated enough. I mean, it's certainly complicated in terms of the senses and actuators that go into it, but whether just as a language form, whether it needs additional complexity in there. There's a scripting language that I wrote for the simulation prior to the brain code called ApeScript, which is a C-like language. And I have a shared uh, kind of ApeScript brain code overlap that I'm interested in exploring with the difference that rather than being uh, byte codes, it could be up to um, a 32-bit address space and actually do quite a bit more, I think, in terms of these representations. It is probably just a simple switch based on the way the sensors and the actuators are repositioned currently. So um, my hope is within the next six months to rather than having this kind of abstract byte code, having almost a C-like language that was being changed dynamically um, to and show this kind of information. In regards to this, there's a huge, obviously a huge psychological literature on human language mm-hmm. and what what some of the basic you know rules are thought to be in order to have language to, to evolve language what is necessary and I wonder if this is based on those sorts of like what's being done with this is is, is it in any way testing those kinds of hypotheses well the reason that I introduced with, with Bob's assistance to language was actually spending a lot of time with the linguist right and okay. um, I think um, Certainly his view was that everything we are is our language, basically. 
a relatively extreme view, but his view nonetheless. Uh, and the lack of language, the lack of language as I've described in Noble Ape was a serious flaw for him. And I thought, well, you know, with the legacy of bytecode, I mean, Avida et al., um, this kind of stuff is relatively easy to throw in there with the right kind of censors and actuators. And the waiting on the censors and actuators has been part of the, the overall um, tuning of this. But yes, certainly, I mean, through a single interaction specifically. Um, but yeah, very much so. I mean, because I think our application with this kind of stuff would be just that testing, you know, current hypotheses about how things either evolve or develop or just are the way they are. And I mean, it'd be the, the closer these simulations are to what, you know, the closer they are implementable to ideas about these things in the field, you know, the more useful this tool would end up being. So the more, the more sort of non-germane the code is and arbitrary the code is, the harder it's going to be to relate it to biological concepts. So so one of the other benefits of it being open source is that I get between, well, it's typically towards the lower end, but between uh, 2 to 12 um, students and engineers contact me per month wanting to work on the code for something. Wow. So one of the reasons that I came to A-Life was because I have this flux of, of human power basically, that it's looking to do something with Noble Ape specifically. So, for example, the termites, um, the um, uh, temporal polyethism immediate fits, I thought. Um, there were a few others, the secondary mapping of, um, or um, interaction producing secondary mapping, that's an immediate fit because it was one of the early tests that I used with, with Noble Ape for the initial cognitive simulation. So it's, it's taking the literature, taking the human interest... And, and putting the two together with the view that these are, you know, undergraduate or graduate students are looking to get into this kind of stuff anyway. On that end, on the engineering end, there are fascinating engineering problems as well associated with this kind of stuff. So it's just putting, you know, latent energy basically towards an interesting purpose, um, which is, you know, one of the reasons that I'm here. Right. To recruit more of that human force? Well, in some regard, but actually it's more of a matchmaker right. than anything. That you, you can take a wide variety of papers and what have you and just pass it to them, but if you have the people that actually write the papers who are interested and aware that this is going on, it's, it's much more productive, I think. Um, and in terms of the kind of interaction, these kind of things, I think it's net positive. I'm just wondering how we should um, proceed for time, because we have already our meetings up now. Yeah. And then... I yeah, was we could meet or like, yeah. I had turns out I had I'm jumping between and I have to go do some administrative <laughs> stuff, so I'm not going to be able to join in later on. But okay. you know, well then feel we free. do need to have army because I was thinking yeah. we could just reverse the time. Yeah, but, no, uh, I've got to be up in that side at two forty-five. Okay. So, so unfortunately, then we'll have to call it an end to this. And not a problem. I can talk Terrific. Uh, Looking forward to it. Um, but uh, boy, this is a. Uh, uh, a, a quick uh, look into a very deep pool. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Well, thank uh, you. Thank you. Coming. It's been wonderful. Thanks a lot. Thank yeah. you.